Welcome to the place where people of faith find real answers. We believe women deserve more than just religious band-aids for their most difficult and destructive relationships. And now for today's episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Welcome. I'm Julie Sedenko with author and relationship expert Leslie Vernick. Today we are talking about healthy parenting. So Leslie, what is our job if we're to be good and godly parents? You know, our basic fundamental job as a parent is to teach our children not to need us. So when they're children, of course, they're very dependent and they need us for everything. And our job is to work ourselves out of a job. And there's some fundamental lessons that we need to teach our kids in order for them to take the mantle for their own lives. And obviously, if we're Christian parents, we're godly parents, we want to teach our children godly principles. But these fundamental six principles are true, whether you're a Christian or a Jewish person or a Catholic or a Protestant or Muslim, whatever faith you are or no faith. These six principles are about healthy children, not just religious children. And I think that's really important because sometimes in our Christian world, we get very narrow in what parenting is. It's discipline and it's teaching our kids about God, but it may not be as broad as it needs to be in order for them to grow up to be healthy individuals. And I don't think you can be spiritually mature if you're emotionally and mentally unhealthy. And so these are some fundamentals that I think are important for every parent to teach their kids in order for their kids to grow up to be healthy, strong, and hopefully godly individuals. The very first lesson all children need to learn from their parents is that they're loved unconditionally. And they need to learn this lesson viscerally because they don't have language. Children don't understand words. You can say, I love you, but a child, a baby doesn't understand what that means, but they do understand that you fed them, that you held them, that you were gentle with them, that you changed their diaper when they cried, that you cared when they were distressed, that you rocked them when they were tired, that you came when they cried. All these things give a child a sense that I matter, that I'm important, that when I use my voice in my one note cry, you hear me and that matters to you. And that gives a child a very secure base, not just mentally, but viscerally in their body from which to flourish and grow. And this is also their very first taste of the love of God and his unconditional love for him or her. And if we think about it, it's much easier for a child to grasp and believe God's love for them if they first experience a parent's love as they're born and as they're growing up. Now, that doesn't mean that we perfectly love. We don't. And so we are going to sometimes fail our kids. But when we fail them and we're cranky or we're unloving, I think if we can just admit that and own that and, hey, you didn't deserve me to yell at you right then. I was crabby. Own it for ourselves instead of putting on our child. You make me so mad. You're a bad kid. When our kids can understand language, that can be so damaging. But even when they can't understand language, when your child is crying and crying and crying and you never go see what's wrong, when your child is distressed and you don't have soothing words for them, when they're flailing their body and you don't wrap them tight and bring them to your body so that they can feel that calmness of your body, they will get a sense viscerally that I'm unloved, unimportant, and that will create anxiety for them later in life. So it's really important for a child to experience that parent's unconditional love. And again, when you don't do it perfectly, make sure that you let them know it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about me. I'm an imperfect parent. Of course, I'm an imperfect parent. And that also frees a child to be an imperfect child. But that's only after language can start to be developed. 
And so the second thing that a parent needs to do to help their child when you have that secure base is that as a child begins to learn language, they need to know and name their feelings and put words to what's happening inside of them. You know, I can't tell you the number of people as I was a therapist in a private practice and counseled people who couldn't name their feelings. I don't know what I feel. I just feel upset. I feel upset inside. I feel upset. That was the best word or bad. Those two words were the only words they had to describe their emotional state. And so it's really important when our children start to express emotions, even as a baby, that we put words to those emotions. Oh, you're tired right now. Oh, your diaper's all wet. No, that doesn't feel good when you have cold, wet diapers. You're tired or cranky. You're cranky. You're hungry. You need to eat. You're starting to name their feelings when they're sad and they're crying because you're leaving them. You're so sad. Mommy will be right back. It's really helpful for a child to have a feeling vocabulary because ultimately as they mature, you want them to be able to express those feelings with words and not just acting them out all the time. And so helping a child know their feelings and put the right word with the right feeling can be a huge asset for them in adult life or even in adolescent life. If you're sitting there right now thinking, that's me, I don't even know my feelings. I never learned feeling words. And I find that especially true for children who grow up in families who don't talk much and don't talk about deep subjects much or don't explore your feelings, you have no words for feelings. And so you sort of just shut down. You know, you don't feel good or you go numb, but feelings are an important part of our life as human beings. It's sort of like taste buds. They're both wonderful and they're terrible. I remember drinking a glass of sour milk. I didn't know it was sour, but my taste buds warned me before I swallowed it that I ought to just spit it right out of my mouth. And so our feelings are sort of like warning bells that tell us that things are good or things aren't so good. They're warning us that this is, a, this is a safe environment. This isn't a safe environment. This is a pleasant experience. This isn't a pleasant experience. And it helps us orient ourselves. But if we don't know how to navigate our feelings and we don't know how to express them appropriately, then we will later have relational difficulties and we'll have other problems in life. And so helping your child name the correct feeling for what they're experiencing in their body is crucial. Now, if you don't know how to do this, maybe you never learned how to do this. And you're the kind of person who's sitting there listening, raising your hand saying, yeah, I have happy, sad, good, bad. That's the amount of my emotions or maybe mad. Every time I feel upset, it's always the mad channel. So let me help you just really quickly discern a couple of things. When you're feeling upset inside, ask yourself some basic questions. So we're going to take the good feelings off for a minute because those are a little bit easier to identify for most of us because we don't feel any negativity about having good feelings. We feel happy. We feel joyful. And usually we can say those things, but the negative feelings have a little bit more shame involved with them as if we were good Christians or we were mature people, we wouldn't feel these feelings, but we do. And so it's helpful to know what we're feeling. So let's say you're feeling yucky. You're feeling upset. So ask yourself, is this upset feeling more of a sad feeling, more of a scared feeling, more of a mad feeling? Those would be three basics that you could just discern. Is it more scared, mad, or sad? Now, sometimes sad and scared go into mad because we don't like to feel scared, especially if we're thinking we shouldn't feel scared, especially guys, they don't want to feel scared. So when they start to feel scared or anxious, they move into the mad channel right away. Or sometimes when we feel sad, we don't want to feel sad that 
someone doesn't want to be our friend. We just get mad because we don't let our sad feelings come up. But ask yourself, is it sad, mad, or scared? And then ask yourself, is it a little bit? Is it medium or a lot? Because you would use different words for those feelings, the intensity of those feelings. For example, if you were a little bit mad, you might use the word, I'm frustrated, I'm irritated. And sometimes someone says, you're mad. And they say, no, I'm not mad. I'm just irritated. Well, you're still mad. You're just a little version of mad. You're low intensity mad, but it's still that category of emotion. But if you were really, really, really furious, you wouldn't use the word irritated because that would be confusing. If you're raging around the house in a fit of anger and someone says, oh my gosh, you're so angry. And you say, no, I'm not. I'm just frustrated. You're not frustrated. You're in a rage. And it's important for you to understand that because that scares people when you're in a rage. It may not scare people when you're irritated, but it may terrify people, especially little ones around you when you're in a rage and you can't even manage that or understand what's happening to you. And so name the category of emotion. And there's lots of names for emotions on the internet. You can go on the internet and just say emotions and their names. And there's charts up the wazoo that you can find to find the right name for your feeling. But look at the basic categories and then try to find the intensity of that emotion. And then think of the right word that matches that intensity. And that will help you learn to name your own feelings so that you can help your children name their feelings. So when they're throwing a fit in the grocery store, I know you're really, really mad right now. But this leads us to our third category, our third thing that we need to teach our children if we're going to be healthy parents and teach our kids to be healthy individuals. And that is, no matter how strong they feel something, no matter how mad they are, or no matter how sad they are, or no matter how scared they are, they're required to learn how to deal with the expression of that emotion. There's limits to how they act when they're emotional, and they may need to still do something even if they feel a feeling. They may still need to do the right thing, for example, even if they feel scared. So if you're taking your little one into a dentist, and they say, mommy, I feel scared. Good. They're naming their emotion. Yep. Everybody feels scared when they go to the dentist and you're going to feel scared, but you're going to get through this. We sometimes have to help our child face their feelings, not just coddle them so that they don't feel their feelings or get rid of their feelings. They have to face them so that they learn, oh, I can feel scared and still function. I can feel mad and I don't have to be ugly and mean to people. So when your child at two years old is throwing a fit and kicking you and wailing with their hands and slaps you across the face, I hope as a good parent, you would grab their arm and you would say, I know you're really mad right now, but you may not hit mommy. You may not bite your sister. I know she took your toy. That's upsetting. It's disappointing. You're mad right now, but you may not bite your sister. I know you're hungry right now, but you may not throw a fit in the car. These are ways to help us communicate to our children that we can validate their feelings, that they're allowed to have their feelings. We're not shaming their feelings. We're not saying to them, what's wrong with you? Why can't you get a grip? You're a bad kid because you feel that way. I remember once working with a woman who couldn't feel her feelings. Everything was fine in her life. And I said, well, why did your doctor break, send you to counseling? Well, I'm having all kinds of physical problems. And I said, well, what's going on at home? Nothing. Everything's fine. She couldn't be in touch with her feelings. And then this incident happened and it woke her up to why her two-year-old 
wanted to go visit grandma and grandma wanted to visit the two-year-old. And so the mom who I was, my client took her over to her, her mother's uh, and father's house for a sleepover for the two-year-old. Now, you know, that two-year-olds are fickle when it comes to sleepovers. They may want to go to Nana's in the daytime, but at night they want their mommy. And so this two-year-old was like a two-year-old. And so she didn't want to stay at Nana's house anymore when it got to be nine o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night time to go to bed. I want my mommy. I want my mommy. I want my mommy. And this Nana didn't know how to handle this child's emotions. She wasn't able to validate them and help this child work through them. All she did was call her daughter and say, your kid's being a brat, come and get her. So now this little two-year-old's learning, wow, when I feel sad or I feel scared, I'm a bad girl. I get rejected, right? And that's the last thing that we want to teach our children when they're experiencing emotions. So when they're experiencing emotions, validate those emotions, name those emotions. But the third thing that we have to teach them is when they feel something strongly, they also have to learn how to control the expression of those emotions so that they're not harming themselves. They're not banging their head against the walls. They're not biting other people. They're not hitting people. And how many adults do we see today who don't know how to manage their emotions. And so they say awful things. And the Bible tells us with their words, the godless destroy their friends, reckless words, pierce like a sword. Well, what fuels those reckless words? Emotions, emotions, out of control emotions. And so if we can't teach our children how to manage their emotions and to name them and what to do with them, we're not going to help them grow into healthy adults. The fourth thing that we have to teach our kids is that reality exists and that they have to accept it. And that the more they resist reality, more they refuse to live in the truth, the more pain they're going to have in an already painful situation. For example, the reality is you're tired and it's time to go to bed. No, no, I don't want to go to bed. It's time to go to bed. No, the more they resist that, the worse it gets, right? And so sooner or later, once your kid accepts reality, it's time to go to bed. Things are much better for everybody. When it's resistance, it's not pretty. Let's say they want to watch video games and they've got to do their homework and you're trying to be the parent. Reality says time to do schoolwork. Reality says your homework's due. You're not free to just watch video games all day. That's not how reality works. If your kid wanted to jump out the bedroom window because they wanted to be a bird, you would teach them reality. You're not a bird and birds fly, but humans don't. And if you jump out that window, there's something called gravity that's going to get a hold of you and pull you to the ground and you're going to get hurt. Now you wouldn't say it that way to your kid, but you're teaching your children what life consists of, what life is really like, reality and living in the truth. Schoolwork is important for your long-term well-being. Of course you might not like it right now so you're validating their feelings. Yeah, math is hard. It's hard to sit in your chair and learn when you would rather be out flying kites. Yeah. That's true. You're validating their feelings. But this action step, homework, still needs to be done. Yes, you're scared to go to the dentist, but this action step, getting your teeth cleaned or fixed, still needs to happen. And your job as a parent is to make resisting reality for your child as unpleasant as possible so that your child is more likely to accept reality without a fight, without resistance, which is better for him or for her, and definitely better for you. For example, Let's say they don't want to do their homework. What kid wants to do their homework? Very few. So your job as a parent 
isn't to make them do their homework because guess what? You don't have that power. You can sit a kid down and you can put their books in front of them. You cannot make them put it into their brain. That's their responsibility to do. But you can turn off the TV. You can make them sit. You can remove all distractions and you can create some consequences that if you don't get this homework done in the next 30 minutes, guess what? You won't be able to watch your TV program tonight or you'll have to go to bed early so that we can create some environmental realities that make their choice to do their homework more likely. Here's another important example. Reality is that life is not fair. It just isn't. Sometimes teachers play favorites or your coach doesn't play you for the game or they don't even want you on their team. Or maybe someone you like doesn't like you back. Or maybe someone is more talented, smarter, is better at sports than you are. Sometimes reality is harsh. It's cruel. You're the kid who's shorter than everybody else or gets cancer or whose parents get divorced. The more our children fight with reality that life should be easy and fair. Why isn't this fair? I don't understand why it's not fair. This shouldn't be so hard. If your child gets stuck in his or her delusion that life should be fair or life should be easy, they will be harmed because life isn't that way. So our job as parents is to help our child learn the truth. Life isn't easy sometimes, and it isn't fair. Can you see how helping your kid accept reality, even when it's harsh, helps you and them get unstuck? Now, the fifth lesson important for a parent to impart to their child is that sooner rather than later, we want them to start taking responsibility for themselves. So at two years old, for example, maybe even at one-year-old, they start holding a fork and start feeding themselves. And at two-year-old, you're starting to get them to take responsibility for their toilet habits, at least to hold their need to go to the bathroom until they get to the bathroom versus just going in their pants. It's not your job at 10 years old to continue to remind them to make sure they go to the bathroom or that they wipe their butt properly. It's not your job when they're 15 to remind them to take a shower or brush their teeth, take a bath, study for a test. It's their responsibility. If we're going to help our children take responsibility as an adult, we have to teach them how to start doing that as children, to put their own clothes away, to pick up their own toys, to do their own homework instead of over-functioning as super mom or super dad or super parent and do for them what they should be doing for themselves. Think for a minute, how many of you still wake your teenager up for school or tell them they have to get to their job on time and track their homework assignments? How many of you are working to solve their algebra problem or write their term paper or solve their dating problems? Certainly as a parent, we value being able to give input into our children's lives. And hopefully they value your input and ask for your advice. But if you own their struggle, and take responsibility to fix their problem, guess what's going to happen? They never will. They'll just keep asking you to solve their problem or live their life or fix their problems when they're older. And they'll end up blaming you when their life isn't going well, because it's always your fault for not fixing their life the way you should have fixed it. Instead of giving them the responsibility and teaching them how to own and solve and repair or fix their own life challenges. Now, 
this is really hard because we feel for our kids and we have empathy as parents. We want to help them. We want to support them. We don't want to see them flail or fail or fall down on flat on their face. But sometimes failure can be a great teacher. For example, if your child fails a grade, I remember when my son was a sophomore in high school, he was in a private school and he was taking honors chemistry, which he didn't belong in. And I told him when he got into that class, I said, you know, I don't think this is the best class for you. You better ask to be switched. No, I'm going to do it. Okay. Make sure that when you get in trouble, because I can't help you with any chemistry. I don't know anything about chemistry. So make sure that when you get in trouble with chemistry, you talk to the teacher, get a tutor or whatever, because probably you're going to need some help in honors chemistry. Okay. So midway through, I could see he was flailing. And I said, did you talk to the teacher? Not yet. I will. Okay. Just so you know, if you fail chemistry this year, I'm not paying for you to go to school the next year at this private school. You'll have to go to the public school just so you know. So it's up to you to get help for your chemistry grade. But if you don't, and you don't choose to take responsibility for this problem that you have, that you're not understanding honors chemistry. And I didn't say it this way as a parent, but this is the gist of it. Then I'm not going to pay for you to continue to go to this private school. Well, he failed. Now, what do you do? His junior year went to the public school. He had never been to the public school in his life, never been to a public school in his life and had to go his junior year. He was not happy, but here's the deal. If you get all B's in the public school, you can go back to your private school for your senior year. It's up to you. You can take responsibility for your schoolwork or not take responsibility for your schoolwork. And he took responsibility for his schoolwork, went back to his private school, graduated, went to college, paid for his college because he knew that I would not continue to pay for his college if he didn't do his part and his responsibility of getting good grades. And so it's so important that we teach our children how to manage the responsibility they have. We don't want to overload them with too much responsibility. I didn't make him pay for everything, but I made him do his thing in order for me to do my part. And this is so important that we help our kids take responsibility for themselves and for their life. And the last thing that I think it's really important that you teach your kid is how to tell themselves the truth and how to live in the truth. And this goes back to wisdom. God says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And we can't even know the truth all by ourselves. The Bible tells us that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. And that by nature, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And so all human beings live in lies, whether you're raised in a family that believes in God and goes to church, or you're a family that doesn't do that at all. We all lie to ourselves and you can actually hear your children lie to themselves out loud. When I would work in counseling, I could hear my clients lying to themselves out loud. Here's a couple of examples, how your kids might lie to yourself. I can't do that. Oh yes, you can. You can learn algebra. You can learn piano lessons. They might not like it, but they can do it. It's too hard for me. It's not too hard for you. It's that you don't want to put in the effort. So we're correcting their thinking. Nobody likes me. Yes. A lot of people like you. Now, Tom doesn't like you. You're right. Your friend, Tom has decided he doesn't like you anymore. And I'm sorry that happened. And I feel sad for you. And I know you feel sad and angry about that, but John likes you and Susan likes you and Joseph likes you. So you're going to correct your child's thinking whenever you hear them telling themselves a lie. And sometimes when we talk about responsibility, kids take way too much responsibility for themselves. And I remember working with a little girl who was a very kind of a perfectionistic, wanted to do everything right, wanted to be the perfect kid. Um, and she was anxious about that because she was always afraid she'd mess up. So reality is, hey, honey, you are going to mess up. I remember when my daughter was in 
third grade, she was anxious that she was going to get a detention. The teachers, you know, instituted these detentions and she was terrified that she was going to get one. And it was such a fear monster for her that the assignment I gave her was to get a detention. Like, I want you to get a detention today. You can't come home if you don't get a detention. And she goes, I'm going to get a detention. I say, yeah, talk out loud or talk to your friend and get a detention. I wanted her to see that something icky could happen and she could survive it. The thing that she feared the most, detention in that moment could happen and she could get through it. It wasn't the end of the world. And so it's so important for our children to learn reality that failure sometimes can be an excellent teacher, that it teaches us that, wow, I do have to study for my test in order for me to pass, not that I'm stupid and I can't do it. Sometimes practice helping a child learn something. For example, I remember working with my granddaughters and they said, oh, I'm not good at art. I said, well, let's practice. And so we practiced drawing faces for about an hour, gave them some instructions. And by the end of the hour, we said, look, look at the first one and look at the last one. Look how much better you got after practicing, right? And so we have to help our children learn the truth that life is an adventure. Life is a learning experiment. Failure doesn't mean you're a failure. Failure just means that something happened that you can learn from. And so as parents, if we don't give our children that kind of input, then our children are going to believe lies and they're called limiting beliefs. I remember that I had a limiting belief that affected my education. And that was, I believed I couldn't write. Like I wasn't good enough to write anything that would actually be worthy of publication. And my belief caused me to decide not to go for my PhD because I had that belief and no one corrected that. No one said on my school papers, you should be a writer one day, or you're an excellent writer. Nobody gave me that kind of feedback. And so my feedback inside my head is, of course, I can't do it. I'm not good enough, which is natural for all of us. And so if your child is talented at something or is good at something, and they're telling themselves they're not, or even if they're not that good at something like art, my granddaughters weren't that good the first part of the hour, but I've been looking at their art recently and they've become very good artists for their age because they worked at it because they practiced. And so it's so important for us to teach our children to walk in the truth, not just spiritual truth, but all kinds of truth and to help them listen for the lies that they tell themselves, because those lies will become limiting beliefs that may affect their future. So I didn't go for my PhD because I told myself there was no way in the world I would be able to write a dissertation. Now understand 20 years later, when God called me to write a book, I had the same limiting belief. I can't, I can't write a book, God, but you're telling me to write a book. And by that time, I had enough spiritual maturity to say, okay, I'm going to just go by faith. I feel terrified. I could name my feelings. I feel terrified, but I'm not going to let fear be the boss of me. I'm going to decide to obey God, even though I feel terrified. And I sat my butt down and guess what? Seven books later, I finally have gotten rid of that belief that I can't write. Sometimes those lies from childhood can turn into cement-ridden beliefs that I'm not good enough, that I'm not smart enough, that I could never be God's girl or God's boy, that I've done too many wrong things to be forgiven. Lots of lies that can totally derail the trajectory of our life. And so it's important as our job as parents is to teach our children to live in the truth, to walk in the truth, to tell themselves the truth, to renew their mind with the truth so that when they become adults, that becomes second nature.
Well, I know I speak for so many of us that we are so thankful, Leslie, that you faced that fear and wrote that book and several others because they have really been used by God to change people's lives. Quick question for you. You've said before that you can't be spiritually mature if you aren't emotionally healthy. So what if as a parent, you're not emotionally healthy yourself? Yeah, I certainly wasn't. Um, So my story is that I grew up in a a home where my mother was an alcoholic and bipolar. She was definitely not healthy. She grew up in a home where her mother, she was the sixth child of an exhausted mother. And after her mother gave birth to her, she was checked in. The mother was checked into my grandmother was checked into the mental hospital for postpartum depression and never came out. Um, she, she lived the rest of her life in the hospital. So my mother was motherless. Um, my mother had no clue how to be a good mother. Um, and so she wasn't a good mother. She was abusive. She drank a lot. She was bipolar. So when I had a child, I was terrified. I didn't know how to be a mother. Um, my stepmother showed me a little bit about how to be a mother, but that was when I was a teenager. So I wasn't all that interested in learning how to be a mother at the time. Um, I was emotionally unhealthy in different ways, even though I was a counselor, I was still emotionally unhealthy. Um, I didn't know how to manage some of my feelings. I struggled with depression, like my, obviously my family history had. And so I had some work to do if I wanted to be a good parent and I didn't do everything right. I've learned as I've gone, I'm a much better grandparent than I was a parent. So let's not shame ourselves for our deficiencies, but part of healthiness is healthy self-awareness. We can't even get healthy if we don't step on the scale and realize, oh my gosh, I've let myself gain 50 pounds, right? We can't get healthy if we don't go to the doctor and say, oh my gosh, my mammogram says I have breast cancer. We can't get healthy without awareness that we're unhealthy. And so one of the very first steps is when Jesus says, take a look at the log in your own eye, that you've got some work to do in your own self. You have to steward your own self. Who takes every thought captive to the obedience of Christ if I don't? Who renews my mind with the truth if I don't? Who guards my heart above all else if I don't? And I think especially as Christian women, we've gotten the short end of the stick of self-stewardship. We've been told that it's selfish and that we always come last, but Jesus doesn't say that. He says self-stewardship is very important, taking care of you and getting yourself healthy emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally is part of living the abundant life and being able to speak into other people's lives, especially littles who think that everything you say is right and it may not be. And so I would say that if there's someone listening and you realize, wow, I don't know how to manage my emotions. I don't live in reality. I don't even tell myself the truth. I'm always living in how it should be instead of what it is. Then I would say that it's time for you, that God has given you this podcast for this reason, for you to have some self-awareness. And if you want to be a good parent, you can't teach your child something you don't know. My grandchildren were here the other day and I do know art, so I can teach them how to draw faces, but I was having to do some homeschool during the COVID thing. And I don't remember some of the fractions and algebra and math stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't teach them something I don't know. Right now, thankfully it was on geometry stuff. And so I do understand geometry really well. And so I was able to get through that lesson with the fractions and the circles and all that kind of stuff. But had it just been like algebra fractions or things like that. I would have froze because I can't teach something I don't know. And so if you're listening to this and you're saying, wow, I don't know how to manage my own emotions. I don't know how to live in reality. I don't know how to tell my own self the truth. I'm full of limiting beliefs and lies. Okay. Then that's your first step of saying, Hey kids, I've got some work to do too. And we're going to be on a journey of learning. I'm going to learn how to get healthier. And I'm going to teach you guys how to learn to get healthier. And when you're honest and humble with your kids, 
they love it. Just like if you went to your kids and said, Hey kids, I realize that I've let myself get overweight and I have an exercise and I'm going to start taking a walk every day. And you want to come with, and they're going to go, yay, mommy, let's go. They're going to be happy for you. And they're going to want to copy what you're doing. And so don't ever feel it's too late for you to do your work so that you can be the kind of parent you want to be. Leslie, what if you're on the other end of the spectrum and obviously not perfect, but you've done most of the things that you talked about and your kid is still not responding. That is a heartbreaker. And the Bible calls that um, in a lot of verses in Proverbs, the heartbreak of a parent's life is to feed your child the truth, give them wisdom, do what you're supposed to do as a good parent and not get the outcome you wanted. Have a fool for a child, have a, a wicked child or child who doesn't listen. Um, and it's very heartbreaking. It, it, the Bible says it brings grief to a father and mother's heart, and it does. But here's what I want you to remember. Your job in this world, in this life, is to do the next right thing, which is for you in listening to this podcast, parenting. So if you have littles, your job is to parent them well. And this really helped me uh, in some turbulent times during my kids' teenager years is that they weren't responding well and they weren't doing the wise things. And it was horrifying and terrifying. And I have to, had to keep telling myself, I'm going to be a good parent. I have to stand before the Lord for the kind of parent I was. I can't be judged on the decisions they made. That's their responsibility. And that was really helpful. And God, in those moments of grief, said to me, I know how you feel because I'm a good parent. I'm a good, good father. And my kids don't always listen to me. My kids don't always obey me. My kids don't always do what I want them to do. It doesn't mean I've been a bad father. And so God sort of allowed me into the sufferings of his heart as a good, good father when his children don't listen and not to lose heart that you're still to be a good parent as best you know how, and your children may not respond. At least they may not respond right now, but later on, they may look back and say, you were right, mom. Thank you. Even though I didn't listen to you then, I got it now. Wow. Thank you. That is so encouraging, especially as the parent of a 16-year-old. <laughs> One more question, Leslie. What happens when you are wanting to do all of these things, but you and your husband are not on the same page? You know, I find not always, but often parents are not on the same page about how to do these things. But if you were to give a parent a test and say, how would you like your kid to turn out? You know, as a result of your parenting, how would you like your kid to turn out? Nobody would say, I want my kid to turn out to be a bum, homeless, an alcoholic, a criminal. They would not say those things, uneducated. They wouldn't say those things. They would say, I want my kid to turn out to be a responsible, mature, healthy, happy, godly individual of their Christian family right? That's what they would say. So I think if you can agree on that, that that's what you both want for your kids and start there, then how you do that may be different. And so I think that's where you can talk about that. So how do we do that? If that's what we both want, it's sort of like, okay, if we both want to save money for retirement, or if we both want a clean house, then how do we manage the daily tasks of making that happen? And there might be some differences about that, and I think that's part of learning to live together as a family. Even when your kids get older, they may have different ideas about how to be responsible than you have for them to be responsible. And I think it's worth listening to so that you can work together. But if both of you had the same goal, then I think that can stop some of the friction. 
It doesn't have to be your way all the time. It can be someone else's way if you're both achieving the same goal. If you both want to go to California and one of you want to drive and the other one wants to fly, that's a very different approach. But sometimes in families, submission is a really good thing because you don't have to have your way if you're both getting to California. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for so much wisdom on this episode. I know that I myself will be listening to it more than once. Uh, It's a lot to digest, but I know it's going to be good for my family and so many others. Would you please pray for us and those of us that really want to be good and godly parents? Oh, Lord, those of us who have children every single day, sometimes more than one time, see our shortcomings, see our own sins, see our bad habits reflected in our children, see our inadequacies. Lord, I pray that we would not have condemnation for those things in ourselves or even in our children. We are immature sometimes ourselves. We are unhealthy sometimes ourselves. We don't know what to do. Sometimes we just react and cause harm. So Lord, we just pray for ourselves as we're trying to be good parents. We love our children. We want to be good role models. We want to be good teachers to them. We pray for children who don't have hearts to listen, don't want to obey, don't want to learn from their mistakes. Father, they have a rough road ahead of them if they don't listen to their parents. Lord, we pray for real wisdom as parents to be calm and loving and responsible good stewards of the trust that you have given to us to steward our life in front of them and to help them steward their lives so that they can be good parents to the next generation so that the sins of the fathers are not passed down to generation and generation and generation. Lord, help us to be wise and to follow your word and your ways. You are very clear in what to do and how to do it. Help us to discipline ourselves to learn self-control over those pesky emotions that get the best of us sometimes and cause harm in our relationships, especially to our children, because they're littler and they're easier to control. Father, I just pray that you would help us to be committed to honesty and truth, and we would share with one another and support one another in our struggles to be a good parent instead of pretending we have it all together and have our happy Instagram, Facebook families in front of the world to see when we're breaking up at home. Lord, help us to be real and honest, that we would not have to lie and pretend so that we can get the help we need to be the people we want to be. In Jesus' name, amen. That's all for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go to lesliewernick.com for more resources. If this show was helpful to you, please subscribe and share, and we'd love your honest rating and review. Until next time, May God bless your mind, your heart, and your home.